So last week, if you were here, you might remember that we looked at a truly explosive moment in the history of the church where the Holy Spirit moved in a powerful way, pouring himself out and dwelling God's people. And Peter stood up and preached his first sermon and thousands of people confessed in that moment that they believed that Christ was the Lord, that Jesus Christ was the Lord, and thousands of people were cut to the heart. Thousands of people repented from their sin and were baptized into Christ that day. And if you kept reading, uh, you would see that that was just the beginning, that there truly was a a revolution caused by the gospel of grace, uh, drawing people to himself. And every day it says that the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And one of the remarkable things that I think we see in this series on the life of Peter is that when you look at Peter, really, we see what looks like a pretty average guy. Uh, I mean, a guy who, uh, he is selfish in all the ways that we're selfish. Uh, He's impetuous in all the ways that we're impetuous. And yet, for some reason, Jesus saw fit to take Peter and put him right at the center of this proclamation of the gospel of grace and this growing movement of people confessing uh, their faith in Jesus Christ. And this morning, what we're looking at is another truly explosive moment. Uh, Peter and John had just gone to the temple, and on their way up the steps, they came across a lame beggar. And uh, this man couldn't make his way up the steps to participate in worship, uh, and they healed him on the spot. And of course, this attracted a lot of attention, and so they went into the temple precincts, and they proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, and resurrection of the dead. Uh, And uh, just like Jesus, they performed a miracle, and they proclaimed the gospel. And just like Jesus, this landed them in a whole heap of trouble with the temple authorities. And that's where we're picking up this morning is uh, Peter and John on trial before the synagogue. I'm going to read Acts 4, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody and until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, And John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, 
the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak, but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, what a thing that you were up to. I pray that you would uh, speak to our souls this morning in a way that would help us to glimpse these dramatic movements, understand how much we are a part of them, and reacquaint ourselves with the gratefulness of hearing the gospel and believing in it and belonging to your people. I pray that you would help me, your servant, to love these friends well, to speak what is true uh, in a way that honors you and brings glory to you and edifies us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, I was officiating a wedding for a young couple, and that's always fun. These, These were friends of ours that we had known for a lot of years, and we had watched them over the years uh, become attracted to each other and later get married. And they had just graduated from college. And, uh, and so when we went to go do the wedding, I had the fun opportunity to just get to know a lot of their friends. And these were all friends that they had gone to school with and they graduated college together. And I noticed that as I got to know each one of them, they all had something in common. They all had a well-articulated idea of the direction they wanted their lives to take. They had a plan. And they all had a lot of optimism about where their life would go. They they had a plan, and they had hope. Uh, There was one who had finished her undergrad, and she was studying to get a master's, and she had an idea of the work that she wanted to do. And she was really optimistic that she was able to get a certain position when all that was done. Uh, There was another who she was serving uh, with Teach for America, teaching in inner city schools for a couple years, and she wanted to uh, complete that and uh, go back to school in order to return to the same school school district to serve the people of that city and continue uh, administrating in schools. That was her desire. Uh, And then, of course, there was another one, and he was an accountant, and he was working for a large firm and working very hard and long hours, but... He was hoping that if he did that for a few years, he'd get to to move on and uh, transfer to a different branch and live in a city close to friends. Uh, They all had a plan, and they all were 
optimistic about those plans. And I think those two things go together, a hope and a plan. Like, it's hard to have hope if, uh, if we don't have a plan. And I think it's hard to even formulate a plan if there's not semblance of hope. And I also think that's one of the reasons the life of faith can be hard. Because when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're making a deliberate confession and entrusting the entire hope of our future to someone else. And last week you might remember at Pentecost how dramatic it was that you had these uh, Jewish men and women repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized and how baptism meant the shedding of their former identity and the embracing of a completely new identity as followers of Jesus Christ. And each one of them, when that happened, had to be asking the question, where will my faith take me? And I, I would just say that's our question too. Like we know the end of the story. The end of the story that's promised to us is glory and resurrection. The architect of the story promises that to us. But what about all the in-between from now until then? One of the important things that we have to deal with is that as disciples of Christ, he several times prepares his disciples for a life that had to endure persecution and had to endure suffering. He said to them, if they're going to do it to me, they're going to do it to you. A servant is not greater than his master. It's one of the inevitable elements of a genuine Christian faith. And I think the central question of this text to me that I want to ask is, what is God up to as he watches his servants suffer unjust persecution? What is he up to? I'm going to talk about it in three ways. I think we see a few things. One is we see his permission. The second is we see his strength. And finally, we see his freedom. God's permission, God's strength. And God's freedom. I'll take on permission first. When you look at this story, the disciples, John and Peter, were right in the middle of a great disturbance in the temple. The, in fact, the text says that the temple authorities were greatly annoyed at them. So much so that they had them arrested. Uh, now, it's unclear at this point uh, if they were trying to punish them by having them arrested or if they were just trying to silence them. But what were they up to that caused such a stir? Well, you see it in verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So you have two reasons here. One is that they were just simply talking about Jesus. And the, the, the very name Jesus, the association with Jesus, had become anathematized at this point. That would be a big deal. There, there would be no... There would be nothing good, I think. You can't expect a good response from temple authorities if you're speaking in Jesus' name. And the second reason is this, that they were talking about the resurrection in a way that was far different from anything that these temple authorities would have been comfortable with. And so when you put those two things together, you see that, that the, the message of the gospel had a destabilizing effect on the temple and its ability to control its message. And it, in fact... 
It, in fact, the, the, the gospel message that they were proclaiming had a destabilizing effect on the temple leaders themselves. It undermined their message. And so one of the things that we need to see is that that's what the gospel does. That the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, the exclusive salvation available through Jesus and Jesus alone is a revolutionary idea that has the power to completely upend all of the norms that we operate with. And there is nothing it doesn't touch. And those who seek to hold it, we need to be aware of this. If we seek to hold on to this faith and even proclaim it in public spheres like they did, we will at times find ourselves on the other, to- on the other side of powerful opposition. It will happen. And it was their faithfulness to the work that Jesus had given them that brought all this about. And for some reason, God allowed it to happen. That he, God permits it. And I think there are times where we feel this tension. Like we know what it feels like to walk into spaces where the expression of what we believe is unwelcome. We know that. We know what that feels like. And to ask ourselves the question, do I talk about it? Do I, do, am, I, am I present in my Christianness? We know what it feels like to fear that it might cost us something important. And the inclination, I think, to hide can be really powerful. But what we need to see is that the same place that we see persecution and the suffering of John and Peter, we also see evidence of God at work in really powerful ways. Look at verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000 people. It's just that, that's a staggering, <laughs> that's a staggering number of people that were coming to believe. I don't know how the temple fit all of those people. And, uh, and there's some scholars that think they were just counting the men, that if you included all of the people that actually came to faith, it could have even been more than that. Just imagine, look, this room, the capacity in this room is about 330, okay? We probably have about 125, 150 in here right now. 5,000 people confessed for the first time new faith in Jesus Christ. It looks like word is getting out about Jesus, and there's nothing the temple authorities can do to stop it. Like, no matter what they do to Peter and John, nothing can stop the spread of the gospel among people and people coming to new life in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing movement that, that they're doing. There's this rapid growth. And I think the question we should ask is why? Like, why is this happening? If Peter and John are being faithful to the work that Jesus gives them, then why are they having to suffer in this way? Is God not strong enough to protect his servants when they're at work? And I ask that question because there is a powerful display of strength on hold in, this, uh, in these next two verses when they go to trial. And there's a picture of strength as they draw together all these powerful people with real influence in their community. It says they've got 
elders and scribes and rulers all pulled together. In verse 6, there's some, some names that would have been household names at that time. Annas and Caiaphas, high priests, the high priestly family that presided over them. This is the assembly of the Sanhedrin, which was seven, that, that was 71 influential and powerful people gathered together, and it was dominated by uh, a, a group of people called the Sadducees. These were religious authorities who were known for being much more political and much more concerned about power than they were about, uh, uh, much more concerned about politics than religion. They were known for cooperating with Rome in such a way that they uh, would keep themselves in the top and more powerful positions in the, in the temple. And the arrangement of the Sanhedrin would have been uh, done in order to intimidate the people that they had on trial. They would have been arranged in concentric semicircles with Peter and John and this uh, healed uh, man next to them right in the middle. All designed to just, to just intimidate that person. It's just a show of strength is what it was. If you're wondering what that might have looked like, if, you, if you're a fan of Harry Potter, forgive me if you're not, but if you're a fan of Harry Potter, just think of Harry Potter, the teenage boy standing in front of the wizen gamut, okay? Like, it's the kind of moment where you have, you even have trouble thinking, like stringing together coherent sentences. That's what it's designed to do, is to scare them. And that's also the moment where you see a true display of strength. And you get a glimpse of just who is actually at work, in power, in their midst. Verse 8 is glorious. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the moment you know that Peter is not alone. And that his suffering is not in vain. And that there's nowhere he can go where the Holy Spirit isn't with him, guiding him and taking care of him. And that that it's very likely that God actually placed him in this place in order that he would speak truth in this particular setting, that they would hear it. And you know, there's one time, there was a time when Jesus told them that this moment would come. He warned them that there would come a time where their association with him would be dangerous. And it would even be hard to acknowledge him before other men. And he said this, he said, when they, when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you should say. Listen, the same Holy Spirit that moved at Pentecost, the one that is drawing people by the thousands into faith, is the same one who's present again, working in Peter, teaching him what he ought to say to these people. And so when he spoke, he spoke clearly. And he spoke with strength, and he articulated exactly what would happen. And it's interesting to me that when you look at what he said, it's not a defense of himself so much as it's just another proclamation of the gospel in the setting. He just tells them what they believe. And none of the things that he said were things they would want to hear. If you're trying to win the affection, 
If you were trying to win the affection of the Sanhedrin and maybe win their favor, you wouldn't have said any of these things. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Yet here goes Peter talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they they don't want to hear anything about anybody whose power is greater than their own. Yet here goes Peter talking about how Jesus is the cornerstone of their faith. He said, he said, he, was, he is the cornerstone, the essential element of our faith. You are the builders, and you missed it. You completely missed it. In fact, you rejected him, and you're guilty of killing him. And one of the people I read this week looking at this passage said that Peter, th- Peter hurled the truth at them like a flaming spear. <laughs> I thought that was a great graphic picture. And I don't know, I wasn't there, obviously, but I bet when he said these things, the whole room was quiet. Like you could hear a pin drop in that moment. And I bet everybody was uncomfortable. And you probably heard somebody clear their throat. And these old, these, these old guys were shifting in their chairs and you could hear the, them shifting around. In fact, the passage says that they were astonished. They were uneducated and common men. That just meant they didn't have rabbinic training. They shouldn't be able to talk this way. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. And they had nothing to say in opposition. What does this mean to us? Well, I tell you, I I, I don't know all of the ways that it's hard to be a Christian for you where you currently live. I can't, I mean, I don't, like, I know there are ways that it's hard for each of us in in particular instances. And I believe that it's only going to get harder for us as years go by. Um, I don't know that we'll ever face a time where we will be on trial for our faith, where we'll be hauled before authorities. I do know that we have brothers and sisters around the world for whom that's a very real possibility. And I also know that living out our faith in public is going to require some courage. I just know that's true. Uh, I know it's true for us, and I know it's especially true for our children, and our children need to see that in us. Um, And there are going to be times, we just have to be prepared for this, when who we are in Christ Jesus this chief identity we have will invite persecution. It's the inevitable reality. And maybe, I would bet that some of us in this room are experiencing something like that right now. No matter how much we can seek to protect ourselves, this is just an inevitable reality of who we are and a part of what we believe. And so, in those moments, I want you to know deep in your bones that even though suffering can feel so lonely that you are not alone. That there's nowhere you can go. There is nowhere you can't outrun and no man can separate the, the bond that exists between you and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said right before he ascended to heaven, he said, I will be with, this is a promise, I will be with you always until the end of the age. And then days later, he sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, poured out at Pentecost.
You can, there's nowhere you can go where the Holy Spirit is not with you. And even when our faith is on trial, remember that Jesus was on trial too. That he suffered unjust proceedings that bear a mark of shame and history. And in the end, he was vindicated by a father who loved him. And that just as he was vindicated, you will be too one day. You will be too. Your suffering is not in vain. They're honorable footsteps on a royal path that follows our king. And if you can believe that, then you will be truly free. You will enjoy the same freedom that we see pictured here in this story. When you look at this story, who's free, who's actually free and who's actually in prison? To me, when you look at the Sanhedrin, I'm seeing a bunch of people that are in captivity. You think about it, they didn't know what to do because it was clear to everyone that Peter and John were operating with power. There was a very visible sign that was witnessed by thousands of people. So they had, they had the healed man there in their midst, and they had a crowd of, of people whose opinions mattered to them. And they were held captive by these things. They couldn't, they couldn't do anything. They would have done something if they could have, but they felt like they couldn't because of, the, because of the crowd is what the text says. And you know what the saddest part of this whole thing to me is? Is that they just heard the gospel presented to them in a powerful way. And it never occurred to them that God might be up to something. That in their cold hearts, that were so concerned about protecting what they had, protecting the status quo, and, uh, and protecting the power they felt they had, that, that it never occurred to them that this gospel might be true. That the message of go- the gospel was for them too, but they were unwilling to hear it in those moments. And so they were enslaved. They were enslaved to their own desires, and they just decided it would be best if it all just went away. So they told him to be quiet. What started as the appearance of strength was revealed as a frail dependence on protecting what they had. And if they're the image of captivity, then Peter and John to me are the the very image of freedom. Because when they heard the judgment, they were told, don't speak any longer in Jesus' name. They responded with whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we can only speak of what we have seen and heard. What was the governing mechanism for them? It wasn't self-protection. It was honoring what the Lord had given them to do. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's what we see in this passage. And you know, it's going to get harder for them. They're going to have to remember these things. Because they're... Peter's going to land in jail two more times that we have recorded. And it might have been even been more than that. And each time he goes back to jail, it gets a little more severe. Like his treatment gets a little harsher. And in fact, the next two times we see more evidence of the fact that Peter's not alone. Why? Because he was broken out of prison by an angel. And you might ask the question, how can I call Peter free if he's landing in prison all the time? And I would, I would respond to you this way. Because no matter what the world could do to him, the harshest treatment they gave him could not touch the thing that he held most dear. 
Jesus was all that mattered to him. And they couldn't take that away. Michael Card has a quote that says, If the heavy stone couldn't keep Jesus in the tomb, neither could the iron bars of a prison cell. Peter was totally free because of his belonging to Jesus Christ. They couldn't touch him. There's a story about uh, a Christian general who served in Frederick the Great's army. Frederick the Great was uh, a powerful king in Prussia in the mid-1700s. And there was a time when he called all of his generals together, and including this one Christian general who was a part of them. His name, I'm not going to get it right. I've just learned that Adeline knows how to uh, is study in German. I, I should have asked her. But his name is Hans von Zeiten. Does that sound right? Doesn't know. Yes? Oh, good. Hans von Zeiten. Uh, and, he had, he, and so when they called a meeting of all these generals, uh, he said, no, I have duties to perform at my church. Then, and I'm participating in the Lord's Supper, so I can't come. So he refused to come, and uh, which, you know, that's like, that's my kind of guy, you know. Uh, sorry, I'm with my church. I can't come. Uh, <laughs> but later, he was again invited to dine with all the generals over dinner with Frederick the Great. And this time, uh, they all joked about him, and they teased him. They mocked his face, and they even mocked the Lord's Supper and the sacred things that he believed in. And when that happened, von Zeiten stood up and, uh, to, to his intimidating boss, and he said this. He said, my Lord, there is a greater king than you, a king to whom I have sworn allegiance even unto death. I'm a Christian man, and I cannot sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonored, his character belittled, and his cause subject to ridicule. With your permission, I shall withdraw. Nobody spoke. Because words like this usually meant death. But Frederick the Great was so struck by his courage that he begged him to stay and promised that he would never again demean those sacred things. And I would just say that when Frederick the Great saw courage, I see freedom. That this humble general was endowed with the same freedom that Jesus gave Peter and that Jesus gives you to carry the revolutionary message of the gospel with you wherever you go. Friends, may you be the very fragrance of Christ as you live out your days in the in-between, now and when you see Jesus face to face. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Savior, hold us in faith and nurture us in faith. And, O Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be speaking the true things we believe to our hearts that we need to hear over and over again, that you would nourish our faith, nourish us in faith through your word and the taking of this meal that we'll enjoy here in a few minutes. Please be with us, your people, now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.